and welcome to the Castelli podcast, the show where we dive into the world of Castelli and professional cycling and explore the stories behind the writers who inspire us. I'm your host, Søren Jensen, Castelli Marketing Manager, and today we have a fantastic episode lined up for you with a very special guest. But before we dive in, I want first to express my gratitude to all of you who have taken the time to send in your product-related questions and suggested topics for future episodes. Your engagement means a lot to us and I assure you that we'll dive into some of these questions in next week's episode. But let's get started. Today's guest is a powerhouse in the world of cycling, known for his versatility and impressive performance in both one-day classics and time trials. Please welcome Kaspar Eskren of the Sudel Quickstep team. Thank you very much. Kaspar, thank you for joining us today. We are thrilled to have you on the show and learn more about your incredible journey in the world of cycling. But at the moment, I know that you're in Girona for a smaller training camp before attacking Tour de Suisse. Well, tell me, Casper, how Girona and the weather is treating you these days. Well, uh, today is uh, fortunately my rest day. We had, uh, we had some rain with on and off uh, during the day, but uh, the last few days have been really, really nice. And uh, it's a really nice area to, to ride in. Uh, I really understand why a lot of my colleagues uh, choose to settle here. So, uh, But uh, yeah, it's been a nice camp and uh, now I'm halfway, so still a few more good trainings to, to go before I head back home. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful there. I've also been there a couple of times now after we opened the Castelli flagship store. At the riding, no matter if you're on the road, the gravel is just amazing. So that's the first time for you uh, in the Girona area? No, we actually had a, a training camp here before the 2021 season. We were staying out uh, in a golf resort a little bit closer to the coast compared to where I am now, but uh, a lot of the same roads and, and climbs. And I have a little bit of experience here, but uh, I also have my girlfriend uh, here with me and she lived here for six years. So she helps me out with GPX files to find all the uh, the nice little roads. So Casper, let's, uh, let's dive into it. But you have made a quite a name for yourself in the cycling world, achieving remarkable victories, including winning the Danish National Time Trial Championships, I think, three times, and the Danish National Road Championship, Kuen Brussel Kuen E3, and I guess what most will think of at the icing on the cake, the 2021 Tour of Flanders, when you crossed some of the best classic specialists and out-sprinted Fenderpol to win win the race. Well, let's rewind a bit. Uh, how did it all begin for you? What inspired you to pursue a professional cycling career? Well... I started cycling because I had stopped another uh, sport um, and uh, my parents always encouraged me and my three brothers to to do some sort of some sort of sport when we were young and um, so I had been looking around for like a year uh, trying a few different things and nothing really caught my my attention that I stayed with it at least uh and then during the summer uh, watching the tour de france like we did uh, almost every every summer uh, i said to my parents maybe maybe cycling that uh, that that looks like it could be fun and uh, we called up the local bike club and uh yeah they had training tuesday and thursday and usually there was races every weekend and we headed down to to the to the bike shop and and bought a bought a race bike and uh and i showed up to the first training and then yeah immediately in the first couple of trainings it just caught my attention and you know i've always been like also with the previous uh, sport i was also like i wanted to be a professional and live off that and 
So with cycling, it was very quickly, now I have to be a professional and live off that, you know? So I have always like set the bar high and uh, then see, see, see where we, we end up. But that came quite quickly that I wanted to be a professional, but obviously at that point, it's more of a dream than it than anything. Um, but it was always like the dream I was working towards. At what age did you start cycling? Uh, I was 14. And then I did my first, uh, like, uh, yeah, yeah, like the DC, the Danish Federation, like the DCU uh, races uh, when I was 15. So I started in the summer of 14 and then I did the whole winter and I started racing the following year. You're 15, yeah. Did you already, you know, had the feeling that you were strong on time trials or some specific courses because Denmark, I mean, everyone thinks that Denmark is pan flat, but you know, that's not really the true or not really the case. I mean, we got rolling hills and we got a lot of wind, especially crosswinds. Uh, did you already find out that you had, that you were stronger on, on any of those areas, like in on the lumpy races or like in time trials? I think that came more when I was uh, a junior. I really started to notice that the time trials was uh, my forte and uh, started to work more specifically on that. Uh, when I was still an under-17 rider, I I think I struggled almost everywhere. <laughs> in the wind, in the, in the hills, <laughs> in the time trials. And they were just all going faster than me. So, <laughs> yeah, it came more when I was a junior, I think. Yeah. But when did you then, because your career has been proceeding pretty fast because, you know, from junior, you moved up then to, well, you moved to a German team in 2015. Yeah, that was the second year on the 23. For, as the first year on the 23, I started in the, in the B category. So like second category yeah, and moved up to the A category um, with the, with a club team from Euler in Denmark. Uh, they had their club team and and uh, was riding there uh, in 2014. That's the first year on the 23. I finished the uh, gymnasium in um, in 2014 in the summer. And just like my classmates always, they all go like on a on a on a longer trip uh, in the years after they finish finish school uh, before they go to university. I had the idea that I wanted to do like a year uh, of racing for a foreign team and, and moving there. Like a sabbatical year? Yeah, I, I saved up a bit of money uh, during um, gymnasium and, and also working in the months after I finished school and until the new season would start. Uh, I worked a lot, saved up money so I could move abroad in 2015 and try to have that whole adventure and get away from home like really far away from home so you're really on your own and you have to figure things out on on your own you know um then you moved to germany right and you wrote for the conti team yeah i lived in i lived in the south of germany down like an hour south of frankfurt 900 kilometers away from uh, from home um which was nice it was a really nice area to to ride in and uh, we had a really good race program with the with the german team I uh, I learned a lot in that year. That's for sure. I didn't have I didn't have that much results, um, but I think uh, I learned a lot, uh, both as a, as a rider and, uh, and as a person. Yeah. Then you moved up to another country team. Went back to Denmark. Rode for Team Tray Four. Velo Concept V2. Changed names a few times throughout the years, but yeah, a few times. Yeah. <laughs> 
But who who made then the connection to Quickstep? Was that through Brian Holm or how did that happen? I had been on training camp with them in uh, January of 2018. Uh, I was still with Virtue and um, I was invited as a guest for their training camp with the with the help of Brian. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, at the end of January, beginning of February, they had a really bad accident in uh, South Africa with a couple of riders from, from Quickstep, and uh, that was um, run over by a by a truck. And uh, it was clear that the, that Lawrence the Bus was going to be out for for most of that season, and um, and the Pedavacoch also for the for the whole season basically um, and at the same time a few other injuries I think Fernando Gaviri had his broken hand at that point also and they were struggling a bit to fill the the roster uh, in the different races and um, decided to take on another rider um, to fill that gap and um, so did uh, someone from the team reach out to you or your manager yeah, I got a bit of wind about this from my agent as I was heading down to do Tour of Normandy with uh, with Virtue uh, because I had quite a good start to the season that year. I finished, uh, I think it was fifth or sixth in Trofeo Leguardia pro race in, in Italy uh, and won a stage in, in uh, Croatia, Eastern Spring Trophy and finished second in the GC ahead of April Gacha, actually. He was third. Yeah, good for you. That's a good one. It's a good card to pull out of their pocket once in a while. <laughs> 2018, I beat you. Eh? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I had a pretty good start to the season, so and they knew me a bit from the camp, so I was in the mix, and um, yeah, I was dragging out a bit, but in the end, um, my agent sent me a message. I think you should send Patrick a message your, uh, yourself. Um, because I think he is getting tired of listening to me and and Brian and Pianadis also uh, and also called uh, Patrick and and tried to put uh, a bit of pressure on. So I think he was uh, getting a bit annoyed with listening to so many people uh, <laughs> calling about me. So he said, "I think it's better you send a message yourself." And I sent him a message, and and uh, I get uh, I get a answer back from Patrick that just said stop and I was, I was like <laughs> I died inside I was like now it's finished no chance I fucked it up and then a minute passed and then like I get another message we have a deal oh from Patrick <laughs> from Patrick directly and I sent a screenshot to my agent and I ran into my sports director's room and jumping up and down so I was like the evening after the third stage of Tour of Normandy we just did in zero degrees and snow when they was there <laughs> but all of a sudden it was the best thing in the world <laughs> exactly i mean you were on cloud nine that could do everything just happy yeah nice so uh, what what a journey has been and even today i mean you're only 28 years old and as a part of the renowned sudel quickstep team there's always been the number one classic team you've had the privilege of riding alongside some of the greatest cyclists in the world how has this experience influenced your development as a rider? I think I had some some really good teammates to learn from. When I joined the team, like it was also a bit, it was a bit uh, late for for my age. Like I was no longer on the 23 rider, so 
you know, you also have to come in and you have to prove that they made the right decision. Yeah, obviously the classics was over for that year, but they, I think they saw the qualities I had as a rider and get, decided to give me the chance in the in the following year and, and riding along Gilbert and uh, Stibar and Jabstra and so on, they were amazing guys to, to learn from. Um, and I think that's what also allowed me to already do some pretty decent uh, results in, in the first year with uh, doing the classics. So it was a it was a steep learning curve, but I think the the guys really they really taught me a lot in a very short time, and that's why it was that's why it was possible to do that. And a steep learning curve it was indeed. You joined Quick Step in 2018. The following year, you finished second at one of the biggest races in the Spring Classic season, Tour of Flanders. Ahead of big names like Alexander Kristoff, Matthew van der Poel, Niels Pollitt, Matthews, Nason, Valverde, Chispinot, Greg van Avermaet and Peter Sagan. You were third overall the Tour of California. You won the National Road Championships in Denmark and the time trial. And in 2020, when COVID hit, you had just won Kuhn, Brussel Kuhn. And then fast forwarding up to 2021 and after a victory at E3 Saxobank Classic, you took the most iconic victory in your career and a race that every single classic rider dreams about winning the Tour of Flanders, becoming the King of Flanders for one year. Can you take us through what went on on that last bit of the race when you were riding solo with Mathieu van der Poel? after breaking free on the Paderberg and riding into Odenade for a final two-up sprint. I felt like I had something left in the tank at least. I thought about uh, what my my sports directors, uh, Lofi Peters and Tom Steele told me and they said, yeah, if you have if you have something left in Flanders after 270-odd kilometers, then... Uh, then you have a pretty good chance because if you if you have something left, it means you're on a on a really good day. Uh, is that if you if you feel like you have something left, just trust your legs and uh, don't don't be afraid of anybody. And uh, that that really sat with me in the in the final of the race. I felt like I I was still going well. And but then a few times, Fenderpol tried to drop you. Yeah, he he, he you could see he tried uh, some some really strong attacks, but I was able to match him. So. Obviously, you don't know what happens when once you start the sprint, but I, I felt like I could at least put up a good fight and then you will see what happens. I'm pretty sure when you were a kid, you were watching Flanders on television. And I'm pretty sure also that you always liked that, that kind of racing. So it must probably also have been a big dream for you one day to win one of the big monuments like Flanders or Roubaix. Yeah, the, the the biggest. To be honest, Flanders was always, also before I won it, was always my my favorite race. Uh, closely followed by Roubaix, but uh, Flanders always had a bit the edge uh, for me uh, because of the climbs. I think the combination of cobblestones, the climbs, and the distance, and yeah, the wind and everything in those spring classics is just it makes. Flanders really really special and now I had the chance to ride it several times yeah. at this point and also did many times the recon of right. the race and every time I do it I just I just love the course and I think <laughs> it has such a beautiful flow between the climbs and the second between the climbs where you know here they here there's tactically difficult situations they start to jump and you have to be very 
attentive, that the race doesn't get away from you, uh, that you don't end up having to chase back. And like, it's just for me, one of the best race courses in, in cycling. I know there's always a few small changes, but like the basic elements always stay the same. And I love, I love that race course. I know, I know. You can see it also on telly when you're racing. I mean, I think the guys like you, the one day and especially classic specialist, I mean, you can see just, you can see the joy in your face when you're racing there. What excites you the most about bike racing? And uh, I guess also like, especially the classic races, I'm sure that they give you the most pleasure to understand. Yeah, I think the, what, what excites me the most is like uh, the attacks and the dynamic, aggressive racing. And that's also partly probably the reason why the spring classics is so appealing to me because yeah. it's just like no other races in with regards to being so how aggressive it is you very rarely see that in, in stage racing um, obviously because if you if we rode like that day in and day out in the Tour de France uh, 80% of the bunch would drop out because it's not that's not physically possible you know yeah. uh, you have to you have to be a little bit more conservative with how you race uh, whereas in, the, in those spring classics one day races you can just leave it all leave it all out there because you'll have time to recover uh, even if it takes two or three days right. that's okay but how is it then when you're riding the couples of the Roubaix the Arnberg or the Cafour um, when you're bouncing the couples um, I remember once I think it was probably one of the early years uh, 2006-7 where they're moving to Italy and uh, through a sister brand we were sponsoring the Italian Federation I'm talking to Ballarini and he would always say I mean, you have to ride the couples like you're riding on a wave you never try to dig, dig into them just let the bike roll is that also how you see it well when i ride the couples i like to imagine that like i'm trying to push the front wheel up as i'm riding like with the pedal stroke that i'm like using the pedal stroke as a lever to get the front wheel to like rise up because if you start to have the front wheel dig down into the cobbles then you just get all the every single stone just hits you in the in the hands and in the body and you just get beat up but yeah. I like to like try to lean back a little bit and just let the, the try to, to to push the front of the bike upwards and, and let the front wheel glide over the over the tops of the stones and then then uh, that also keeps the rear wheel a bit more stable so that the rear wheel doesn't doesn't bounce around um, too much and you can get as much forward momentum as possible. As a rider, you excel at both time trials and one day classics. But how do you balance your training and preparation for these events or, um, or these type of races? Because I guess this must be two completely different way of training. Well, for some, it's obviously easier than for others. Uh, personally, I, I think it's a it's a difficult balance. So I choose my moments a bit, to be honest. Um, during the winter, going into the to the spring plastic, I spend some time on my time trial bike, but not that much um, and usually my time trial in like Tireno or Palinis or whatever it is will also suffer a bit from that because my, my focus is mainly on those explosive efforts that I need on the on the climbs in the in the classics and then once Paris Roubaix is finished then I start to shift my focus a bit more towards the, the time trial bike 
and uh, put a lot a lot more work into that. And then usually I'll be on the on the TT bike two, if not three times a week, and uh, do some more specific work for that also. So yeah, for me it, it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult balance. So it's uh, more depending on the season for me. Yeah, Casper, um, you finished four Grand Tours, correct? Three Tour de France and one Vuelta, I think, yeah. yeah. How do you approach, I mean, you're still very young, how do you approach a three-week race mentally and physically? Uh, mentally, it's pretty easy. Don't don't think about the end. <laughs> Just take it day by day. <laughs> right, I think if you start to finish... If you start the race thinking about the last day, day by day, then it's a, yeah, 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 three weeks. But uh, setting a few milestones, but you also got a job to do. I mean, maybe you have a stage to win. Maybe if you want to do a good, good result in a TT stage or team time trial or way other yeah. stages where you have to work for your teammates. I mean, it's not Obviously like you, you just can think ahead. Maybe two or three days. Okay, there's a TT coming okay. up, so yeah. I'll have. I'll take the next two days fairly easily and just finish with the gruppetto and get through yeah. the stage as easily as possible. Yeah. And uh, oh, yeah, physically, obviously, it's it's about arriving in as strong as you as you possibly can, like with a really good base condition. That that that's just uh, I think if you have a really really good base, that will that will save you a lot of uh, suffering in in the long yeah, base in the sure. mountains. And if you can get through those days uh, fairly easy, uh, obviously it's not easy, but and it is and it isn't for for anybody from from the last guy in the Gruppetto to the to the to the climbers finishing up in front. It's not easy for anybody, but if you can get through it without being completely destroyed, then I think that will that will help you in the long run in a, in a Grand Tour. What about doing a Grand Tour? And you guys, you have to get your sprinter into to the finish line or maybe it's a breakaway stage how do you communicate and coordinate with your teammates doing races especially in high pressure situations i mean you have the radio but i'm pretty sure that you guys also move a lot around on instinct yeah. how does all that so yeah usually we'll have whether it's a sprint or if it's in a classic uh we'll have like key points uh that we determine already ahead of the stage in the in the meeting that yeah. at this point then we here we meet and because we got to be ready for this point uh, 10 kilometers ahead or whatever it is yeah uh, here we meet and then we stay together from there because there's either crosswinds or a climb or yeah yeah narrow road or whatever it is you know there's some something we need to be aware of and and so so those points will be determined before the race and then obviously in the races it's a combination of using the radio the signal like it can be quite difficult to understand what's being said in the radio so the less we can use the radio the better but obviously sometimes if there's a rider or two between then you cannot hear, you cannot yell that far, you know, no. going 55k an hour. So you then you need to try to use the radio and try to just take two deep breaths and then speak call hey, and see the radio. And then you and you got all the wind and everything in the mic. <laughs> but what language will you speak then? I mean, since over 60% of the English. Yeah. Always. always good. Yeah. 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 
Casper, what are some of the biggest challenges you faced in your cycling career so far and how did you overcome them? Here, I especially think about some of the crashes that, mm. that you have had and especially about the terrible crash you had at the Tour de Suisse last year. Yeah. And yeah, how did you bounce back? Yeah, like obviously that one is has been the biggest uh, setback I've had uh, so far. Until that point, honestly, I've been so lucky that it seemed like every year it was getting better and better. But um, it's been a long road back, and and still now, like I'm still fine tuning the last the last things, and it's almost a year later. Like we're starting to the Swiss uh, next week, so it's uh, yeah, yeah, only a few days coming up, then it's then it's a year later. So, and I yeah. think it's only like in the last month. Five or six weeks, basically, that I could that I can say that I start to feel like myself again to come back uh, to my normal strength and getting better and better. And you could also see it during the classics period, like in Flanders, yeah. it went pretty well. But you got seventh in Flanders, I think. Yeah, it's not it's not yeah. bad, and uh, definitely, I think if you had asked me uh, a month before that, that I would have signed up for a top ten Flanders because a month before yeah. that I didn't think I was even gonna make it uh, to be ready to be ready uh, to race now so and you finished second of all at the four days of Dunkirk yeah yeah that's again another good step yeah I feel yeah. like now the base condition is it starts to be there and uh, yeah now here on this camp I, I try to work a lot on being uh, a bit more uh, explosive and being able to make that uh, difference uh, when, the, when when we're in the finals because that's that's definitely still still missing. Um, so, hopefully, towards the tour, that that will come back also. So, do you think after a crash or a setback, uh, somehow, that one of the positive and the good things about also living back home in Denmark, you know, it helps you, especially mentally, but also with the network of people you have back home. I mean, you're one of the few professional Danish cyclists who never moved to a warmer climate in the southern Europe. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure also that riding through the winter in Denmark, because I've seen some of your photos there in, in the snow, they definitely also, you know, I mean, we have some harsh winter seasons up there. And I'm pretty sure that this makes you one of the hard men, you know, staying in Denmark. Is that one of the reasons for staying in Denmark, not moving south? Yeah, uh, especially the, the the network part. Like if something like this happens, you know, like we have amazing support from the Federation and the Team Denmark uh, with all their expertise uh, available. And uh, the team uh, was constantly in communication with, with them and uh, also my own physio that I worked with in, in calling. And uh, if I needed scans or anything, it was um, easy to get, um, easy to share the results with the team. So. It definitely makes it easier to be in in that environment than not having to necessarily travel to do a scan of the knee. Like I can just drive over to my local hospital once and have an appointment there. You know, um, you don't need to spend two days to fly to Belgium to do it. You can keep more focus on your on your rehabilitation training and really keep working cons- consistently uh, on that and. Um, and then I think the other one of the other reasons is just with modern cycling teams, there's so many days of traveling that I have to train a bit in Denmark. Like it's in the end, if I start to count the actual amount of training days I have once I 
take away the off season and some yeah. easy one hour rides before and after races on between training blocks. Like, I think I'm down to less than 80 days of actual training in Denmark. Uh, right. Rides more than more than three hours. So in the end, it's not it's not that many days. And uh, you know, if yeah. Uh, if there's a big week and I would like to ride a bit in the mountains, I can do like I do this week and, and just jump on a plane. I can leave the following day. My suitcase is always packed. I just need to pull it out from underneath the bed, you know. So I also made sure that my life was set up in a way that it's easy to it's easy to go somewhere if the weather is bad. And yeah. I know I have thirty a thirty hour week. I can just go somewhere else. Yeah, plus you live not too far from the airport. So. Yeah, 30 minutes. I Pilon Airport is also not the biggest airport in the world, so I, I I leave my house two hours before the plane departs, and I have plenty of time and a lunch in the airport and everything. So I, yeah, and they all know you by now. Yeah, <laughs> you got your private parking and everything. <laughs> Hey, um, I also want to talk a little bit on gravel because uh, I keep seeing you posting photos from the area around Culling. Uh, you're riding, you know, gravel roads, and especially also the event that you in Blobant that you the UCI Gravel World Series that you participated in was that three weeks after your crash at at the Paviru Bay. Um, yeah. What what fascinates you about gravel riding compared to road cycling? Now the um, the race in Blovan, and then I did one last year over in California. Uh, right. That was the first two races. I like I've been using it for training uh, for a couple of years now. Um, it actually started with some of the some of the guys in uh, in Culling that I ride a bit with in the in the weekend. They all uh, well, I, some of them at least uh, are from our uh, bike riders in in some form. Some used to ride on the road uh, professionally and some was mountain bikers and they uh, they started to ride on their gravel bikes and then you know and okay if I, I always enjoyed going going riding with them and they were the they were riding in the club back when I started so I always rode with them and okay if I wanted to continue to ride with them I, I had to get a gravel bike also and so I took it out on that you know so but yeah, it was it was actually I really enjoyed it from the beginning because all of a sudden like there was like this whole new network of, of roads that I had no idea about. Exactly. Yeah. Because you've been riding around in this area around your your hometown for ten years or whatever it is, so you know every single road at that point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, like a radius of fifty kilometers away from the city. All of a sudden, there's a whole, whole new network of roads, and yeah, you can start to connect different different roads in a, in a whole new way and yeah you start looking at, at maps and creating gpx files and sometimes yeah you see uh, you see a road uh and when you when you're out riding on your road bike or gravel bike whatever you see you're out riding you see a road and i wonder where that goes and you go home and you look at the maps and uh, try to find out the where does that one come out and okay then i can go this way around it was really nice and then i think a bit like I did like with the with the cobbles actually. I always found it quite fun to ride on the cobbles, but yeah. find find a bit the same here on on the gravel. That riding on a bit more of a challenging surface, uh, it, it, it I I think it's fun to challenge your technique a little bit, and I think also it, it definitely also made me a better bike handler. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. 
and also riding with these guys. A couple of them are former professional uh, mountain bikers, uh, World Cup winner and Olympic. Um, one, of, one of them did the Olympics in Athens yeah. in 2004. And so they, they, they are really, really good technically. When, when so they're challenging you. <laughs> when, it, when we get in a technical section, I, I don't know how they do it, but somehow they find grip in those tires that I just cannot find. And they still drop me. And uh, when, as soon as you have to put down a little bit more power, then I pass them and I give them a hard time and then it's all good. Then you put the hammer down. <laughs> yeah, I know you're right. You're right. I mean, it definitely, it definitely proves your bike handling skills. And But also what I hear from, from a lot of um, cyclists and ex-pros, they also say that gravel riding reminds them of the times in when they were younger, when they had, when they were just riding the bike for fun and adventure, not worrying about stress or disruptions in your personal life with the family and job and, and other things. And plus, also a lot of people think they also want to distance themselves from from the cars uh, and the street, uh, just getting out there and, and explore. Because like a lot of the rides that I end up doing on my gravel bike is also the just the endurance ride. So you just have to go out and ride. Like you don't have a big block of efforts that you have to focus on. And right. To really prepare mentally. And some days it can be it can be quite hard efforts that you have to go out and do. And okay, then I do it on my road bike. So when I go on my gravel bike, it's also it's also a bit it is a bit more of a relaxed ride mentally to start because it's going to be a fun ride, not a hard rise you know <laughs> exactly hey Casper, uh, let's look a little bit um, ahead in the future um, what are your goals um, for this season and maybe even into next year well first uh, first point really short term hopefully uh, if all goes well then it is to win uh, to win a bike race again that's what I need to kind of put this whole injury behind me and just say okay now I'm back to where I was before and that's the short-term goal is to get back to, to winning races. That's the first point and then yeah, longer longer terms. I think there's still a lot for me to do in the in the classics. Like they're still super fun races and I still enjoy them a lot. So I'll keep uh, working at that for at least a few more years and until I don't like it anymore. I'm not sure that point will ever come, but as long as I like it, as we shall keep... Uh, that keeps you going. Yeah, I will keep working towards that uh, every spring and hopefully at some some point I can also try to to work towards uh, winning a Grand Tour stage. I had a few close, uh, close goals, a uh, few second places in the Tour and... Correct. I would like to to try to win a Grand Tour stage uh, as well, and um, yeah, also a bit of, a bit of a goal of mine is a rainbow jersey, either in the time trial or on the road. Um, both would be amazing, but uh, either one would uh, I would be very very happy. That would be that would be really really cool. So uh, that will oh, yeah. we also keep being uh, a goal of mine. I'm pretty sure. I mean, with your mindset and everything, uh, those things you will achieve uh, in the future. I'm I'm pretty sure of that. Are you also a guy who tinker a lot with your bike setup? Do you work a lot on a bike, you know, at home in your garage, or do you leave it up more up to the the mechanic? I like, uh, I work a lot on my bike myself. Like I, 
I uh, I can do pretty much everything with a road bike. Mountain bikes, I struggle a bit more. I need I need some help there sometimes, but uh, especially with the with the, with the, with the suspension, suspensions, yeah, and the chasing oil and all that. Road bikes, I know my way around at this point. Time trial bikes, I know my way around. So yeah, uh, I always keep my own my own bikes uh, up to speed at home, and uh, yeah. If, if they need something or repairs or anything, I can, I can do it. Yeah. Uh, if I make changes, I make it in the winter. Uh, yeah. Along with the with the bike fitters from uh, yeah. from specialized during our training camp, and uh, so the me- so that the mechanics can update all my race bikes, which I don't have with me during the season. So uh, positional changes is usually in December or or January, and then. They stay the same the whole the whole year, um, and we don't touch it too much, as it starts to be complicated to then all of a sudden have to match up uh, four bikes that are in two different parts of the world. So right, exactly. It's, uh, exactly. Just logistically, it's easier to do it once, and then it stays like yeah. that. And yeah. then if you want to change something, you do it again uh, in December or January. Do you ride with the same bike setup on your gravel bike as uh, as you have on the road bike? Like position, yes. I have a different handlebar on, as I like to have a round handlebar on the gravel bike. It's a little bit more comfortable to ride it on on even surfaces. Yeah. Uh, then the arrow bars can they can be a bit harsh on the on the on the sharp edge of, with the hands. So right uh, on the bumpy roads. Uh, and also for Prade Rube, I, I, I use a normal round handlebar, but otherwise the position is, is the same, yeah. Casper, we have been in the wind tunnel together where we've been testing not only your position, but also the aero suits. You have access to a full toolbox of Castelli products. Which products really stand out to you and make your job between brackets, training and racing that a little bit easier? Yeah, yeah, in the uh, in the winter time, and especially we talked a bit about the the conditions in Denmark earlier. In the winter time, all of the foul weather gear really really helps me out a lot. Um, everything from 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 shoe covers to to gloves and the alpha jacket. Uh, I have a nice uh, nice combo with the uh, with the Gavia rain jacket on top of the alpha jacket, and then the thick uh, Flanders uh, base layer. That will get me through five hours of, of rain and and two degrees, and still come home with a with a dry base layer. So that that that's quite impressive. Uh, I don't know how you guys do that, but I like it. I love it. <laughs> uh, but in for racing, I I think my my favorite piece for racing is the Samaimo suit. It's a really really nice blend of comfort, speed, and breathability. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like that's it, 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 that suit can be used in such a wide range of uh, of conditions. That conditions, yeah, you're correct. I'll usually pack one extra of that one compared to almost everything else in the in the range of clothing. I'll always have just one extra of the same suits because in the end, I think I use it. Yeah, probably at more than fifty percent of the races I do. Of the races, yeah, and because you guys, you have access to I think it's three road suits: BTW, the San Remo, and the Superleggera. But they know definitely, just like you say, with the San Remo, is um, very versatile. The aero suit that you can use in all kind of conditions. So uh, yeah, no amazing product. What about in in training? Do you also wear 
a road suit in training or are you more like a jersey and short guy? Oh, in training, it's always jersey and bibs. Like uh, the suits, like it's like it's like putting on uh, the race wheels. Also, you know, when you put on the suit, then it's then it's game on. The suits are safe for racing. Nice. Um, what would you usually put in your race rain bag before a spring classic race? So we are talking even like the early pre-classics in the February and then all the way up to uh, Roubaix. Actually, my rain bags, they stay the same all year round. We have two, first and second in the first and second car. In the in both of them, I have a, a normal pair of uh, three aero bibs and uh, the aero jersey. Uh, those are in both. And then I have basically split between the two a little bit, basically one of each garment. So one midweight vest, one wind vest, a perfetto vest, midweight short sleeve, midweight long sleeve. Like basically one of each, except for the alpha jacket, all the way up to the perfetto long sleeve. Because then I will have a number two with me in the in the suitcase. So I have always two of each garment with me in the races. So I use the the rain bags a bit as as my my backup uh, in case something breaks during the tour or my suitcase doesn't arrive uh, with the flight and I need to do the first stage or two stages without my suitcase then I know I have like a complete set of everything uh, in the rain bags and I can start a race even without my suitcase good thinking Uh, all the rest of the riders on the team doing the same as you are thinking the same way it depends a lot if you look at the rain bags some rain bags are quite stuffed like mine and some are quite empty so i don't know i know i know i'm sorry i'm not gonna put a name on but i i, I heard a story once where a rider crashed broke his shoe and they took out the rain bag because there's also normally a spare pair of shoes they took out the rain bag and there was a pair of casual shoes in <laughs> no boy <laughs> but no but no race shoes so oh yeah. boy that was it. <laughs> oh yeah yeah so but since you bring almost like one bit of everything uh, also communicating with the mechanics uh, in the car is and is that easy enough of telling them what you need you know what they need to go and, and dig in your back in the beginning it was a bit of a challenge and I think um, for for this year, like during the winter, we had a meeting uh, with uh, with Alvin from you guys. Yeah, kind of just went over all the products. What do they do? So that if we ask for a perfetto light, that they know which one it is, and like the distinct little features that they have to look for when they're digging around in a in a rain bag, like because they'll maybe lie next to a perfetto long sleeve so what why yeah what's the difference yeah like i know that the, the long sleeve have a little black panel underneath here and uh, like the gaba does but the, the the perfetto light doesn't so like that that's like i'll immediately recognize it on that but just teaching the mechanics like those little things also because they don't necessarily have they get some clothes also of course but they don't necessarily have the whole range of, of products like we do so Right, they exactly. Don't necessarily know them as well as we do. So that was a bit of a challenge the first year, but I think now they they know it better. Do you think it was important for all of you guys that uh, Castelli every year when we meet up in Calpe in December that we take you guys through some of the new products, uh, some of the existing products, especially for new riders, but also explain you guys the differences between the aerodynamic drag 
on the different pieces and also with temperatures like those product presentations are they the good input for for everyone on the team uh, for most of the riders or do you think everyone just you know try the stuff out and just use whatever you know again we know it's a personal thing what you prefer and what you don't uh, but having those training sessions I definitely think it's it's uh it's an advantage uh to know like technique technically from a technical perspective what is what is the idea and what is the uh, reasoning behind this product and then yeah like you said it's also a bit individual each rider will yeah. find their own way uh, of using each thing like i use the perfetto vest a lot uh, back home even though it's not raining like it, right. because it's nice that it's uh, quite uh, windproof and it's a bit warm at the same time. Right. So it kind of combines the midweight vest and the wind vest in one layer. So right. I use the, the Perfetto vest as like the, the, the warm windproof uh, layer. So obviously you, you kind of find out those things by yourself also, but at least to when you're, you, when you're new to the product that you have an idea from the beginning what is meaning behind this. Right. It was interesting. I mean, it, you're... You're riding everything that, that you're saying here with the Perfetto vest. Also, it provides that bit of in, insulation compared to other vests. It also has the three rear pockets. What in the race situation, apart from being able to fit a few extra bars or gels or whatever you need to bring. But in a race situation, if you need to get rid of the vest and maybe also your arm warmers, you know, you can easily fit them into the back pockets on the vest and just, you know, return the vest to the car. If we come back and uh, every rider gives a vest, uh, two loose arm warmers and two loose knee warmers, got them it's like five five pieces, and then the seven yeah. riders do that, yeah, then it's the car's a mess afterwards. Exactly. Everybody packs their things into the pockets, and then it's only five pieces that they need to keep track of, or seven pieces yeah. to keep track of. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> so, Casper, uh, are you ready for? cycling style and these will all be like quick answers okay so let's have some fun now and this is all about cycling style here at the beginning and then afterwards some random questions okay do you fit your arm warmers over or under your jersey sleeves if it's in the race and i just have to get like get it on quickly and get my hands back on the on the handlebars then usually i'll put them over but uh in training or before the race i'll put them over the base layer but under the jersey they're under the jersey exactly what about socks do you put your socks over or under your leg warmers under always on it good one mate <laughs> gloves or no gloves in racing uh in racing i prefer to ride with gloves uh but without any padding like i, I honestly i Super prefer light. to ride without glove without gloves i prefer the feeling of riding without gloves so i like to have the gloves as as minimal as as possible so mm -hmm. the unpadded gloves that you guys make are yeah. brilliant for that also just in case that you know you should end up on the deck you know you yeah exactly that's the main reason you know like uh, like i said I, I prefer to ride without but the risk is just yeah. too big if you hurt your hands then you're out of the out of the race you know you can't hold the handlebars properly what about socks high or low socks what do you prefer uh like to just below the calf uh, muscle 
Like just where the muscle starts, that's where the sock should end. Nice, tall, and perfect length, and also another reason for using or fast feet socks. Yeah. What do you think about them, actually? Yeah. Ah, oh, they they are they're really really good. Uh, I like them, and they are nice and uh, nice and thin also. Uh, right. They, they don't get uh, they don't get too warm. I I tried some Aero socks before that was quite thick to get the texture needed to make them aerodynamic, but these are really nice and thin. Now talking training and racing. What do you prefer, crosswinds or mountains? Ah, crosswinds. Cobbles or gravel? For racing, cobbles. For training, gravel. What do you prefer, training or racing? Racing. Do you have a seat on the team bus where you always sit, like front, middle, back? Do you guys have a specific seat? Quite often, I'm on the front left seat, behind, just behind the bus driver. That's usually well. Most of the guys they enter at the center door in the middle, don't they? Also from the front. Uh, I don't think there's a particular. It depends which one is open. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't just think if you're sitting there in the front, then I mean, of course, everyone is gonna come by you and say hi and hello. Sometimes people like to just hide themselves yeah, down in the back. Of course, you guys, you got the, you got a good vibe going on in the bus in the team bus, so. Yeah, <laughs> but it's mainly because I, I, uh, if I don't see out the front window, I can get a bit, uh, I can get a bit carsick going, uh, right. going to the start, and it's, it's never nice to, to start the races feeling sick. So uh, I, I like to be uh, able to see out the front window. Pass. What is the best moment in a race for you? Is it like the last kilometer, or when you're in the breakaway? Wait, for some people, but I don't. I doubt this is you. When the breakaway goes, what is for you like the best moment in a race? Uh, when it's the most hectic. When there's the most going on, you know. I, yeah. It can be like the, the final, you know, one k yeah. to go. It can, in a sprint, can be like that. But usually, at one k to go, you have a pretty good idea of how the race is gonna end up, you know. Yeah. So yeah, in that phase where. Is it gonna be a small group? Is it gonna be a sprint? Like where where the race is really being decided, how it's gonna pan out? That's the best part for me. Nice, yeah, that chaotic thing. I'm pretty sure that you're also really good at moving around inside of the group. Yeah, yeah, I, I try. <laughs> what then is the worst moment in a race for you? I hate this bit. Why in a race? When I'm dropped in a mountain stage and just have to go to the finish. That can be so long. You just have to get to the finish, like as easily as you can. But it's still, it's still hard, you know. It's still hard, yeah. And you know, also it's not easy <laughs> when you have been but end yeah, up in the group head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like that, and it can be in the big mountain stages. It can be still three, four hours to go, and you're just yeah. kind of there, maybe with a few other riders. Maybe you ended up on your own. You know, oh, yeah. It, yeah, it can be a long. Long way. Stay within the time limit. Yeah, time limit. Yeah. So, have you ever been in charge of a of a gruppetto? I mean, there's usually one or two of the no. guys that usually no, no, no that are no. kind of having keeping an eye. on I let the more pace. experienced guys take care of that. Plus, you also got your team directors on the radio that will probably also guide you, looking at the time. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, Casper, what is your favorite training loop of all time? Uh, out in the hills around uh, Eckville, uh -huh. just uh, north east uh, of of uh, Culling, where I live. Going out there uh, on on like uh, May, June, sun is uh, sun is shining and then uh, 22, 23 degrees. 
Yeah, exactly. All the trees are super green and just riding out there in that area and stopping at the Binnebelle equipment school. There's like uh-huh. a, it's like an old uh, like a convenience store uh, that is now been uh, rebuilt into like a museum of like old uh, kitchenware and from and old like farm equipment and yeah, it's it's, it's really, nice. really nice. I gotta Google that. Yeah, and then around the back they have a little cafe where they serve uh, serve uh, small the Danish uh, open faced uh, sandwiches. I miss that in Italy that we're quite famous for, and uh, and then like uh, they have a big uh, like a uh, Monterey of uh, full of cakes, so many different cakes, and it always changes which ones they have, and they all homemade, nice. and it's it's really really good. Uh, that's that's one of my favorite favorite stops and then uh, riding back home hopefully with a bit of a tailwind on the way home if all goes well exactly also because most of the times in Din like the wind is coming from west so you will have northwest now so yeah. most of the times you will be you have a bit of luck here riding back home but there's some tailwind exactly so I gotta try that place next time uh, I'm home next time you're in Denmark we'll, we'll, we'll ride out there together talk about food by the way so also cake so when you stop for a coffee uh, or do a coffee stop during your training rides uh, what's the treat that you would have like what cake pastry do you prefer or do you go straight into the smart bowl? I'll I usually start with something uh, savory like uh, like uh, the smart bowl or a piece of bread with some some cheese or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. then and take the cake afterwards. But I don't know if I have a favorite one actually. I like to I like all of them. I think it's always <laughs> the biggest problem is always choosing. You know, choosing. I know. <laughs> oh, tell me about it. <laughs> Last year, the day before uh, the tour started in Copenhagen, I was out there. You know, we remember with you guys, and we stopped at this uh, at the small bakery. Yeah, uh, I think it was you and Merko who decided what uh, what cakes to to bring uh, to bring to the we table. Ended up buying a big one and then just <laughs> out to the table. Everybody could take a piece. It was nice. Exactly, and you saw that man. Hey, um, I don't know if it was the cake or what, but look at the lumpy. The following day, taking yellow and winning the stage. I'm sure it was the cake. Exactly. <laughs> when you are at races, Casper, um, uh, do you have a usually have a normal breakfast like cereals, toast bread, oatmeal, or do you do more like rice omelette? What do you usually have on on race day for breakfast? Usually on race day, I I tend to do more or less always the same. Uh, first, a portion of uh, porridge, uh, a few slices of bread. Uh, with an omelette or some scrambled eggs or whatever, some kind of egg, uh, and then some pancakes uh, with some sweet spreads, uh, jam, yeah. or Nutella, whatever, whatever I can find. That's usually my pre-race breakfast. Yeah, just keep it all simple and you know, not also disturbing your the stomach with something new and uh, and different. Yeah. So no, that that completely makes sense. What is your favorite race food? Like rice cakes, or is that the small panino? You know, when you get tired of eating gels and, and energy bars. Yeah, like uh, to be honest, I always just stick to the gels and the bars. Okay. Like, <laughs> rarely, I rarely take any. Like, they do make rice cakes for us and like bread pudding and stuff like that. But I, to be honest, I rarely, I rarely use it. Like, I just find the bars and the gels. They are so convenient to eat yeah. in the races. Yeah. 
like they're made for that. So like with the rice cakes, your hands get a little bit sticky and then you're like, oh, no, yeah, I, I'll always just end up eating the, yeah, the, the products from our nutrition sponsor. That also makes a lot more sense than, you know, doing training or when you're back home, you know, you also have, you do your coffee stops and, you know, mix up your, you know, your nutrition intake. So, yeah. yeah, I'm actually, you know, almost running out of questions. It's been a long one, Casper. I think we've been on for almost uh, close to an hour now, I think. <laughs> Time is fine. Casper, I'm super happy I could see here on, on the video. You also, you know, dressed you in the Castelli Flanders t-shirt. I love that thing. Yeah. I no, got it. Fun. I got it a bit ahead of time from you guys before uh, before we started the the, the sponsorship that you guys started to work with the team. So I had to hire yeah. the first few months, and I've <laughs> been uh, the last uh, the last year and a half. I've been been wearing it quite a bit. Yeah, no, it's nice. I'm happy to see that you're that you're wearing that thing. Well, Casper, um, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you, and thanks for yeah dedicating some time uh, for me. Uh, it's been super interesting, even though that I'm, we know each other as friends. But it's been very interesting also to even ask you some questions that we never talked about when we meet up at at camps or at races and stuff. So um, it's been very interesting, and hopefully also very interesting for the Castelli audience here. I don't know if you have anything else you want to say to the Castelli audience before we wrap up this episode. Have fun riding your bikes, and uh, remember to ride in the rain. <laughs> exactly there's definitely no excuse yeah. for bad weather it's only bad clothing right <laughs> exactly awesome well Casper thanks a lot man uh, and uh, I'll see you uh, I'll see you sometime soon yes I look forward to it take care buddy and have fun down there in Giron if you need anything you know remember to pop by the Castelli store uh, or at least just for a coffee if you want to say hi to Luisa and Oscar Uh, yeah, I'll do that. It, uh, I've seen uh, I've seen photos of the store. It looks it looks really nice. So I I'll I hope I have time to to stop by. Thanks, Casper, and see you soon. You, bye bye. Thanks to Casper for joining us on the Castelli Show, telling us about how he got into cycling, his amazing Palmares, his season goals, very Castelli products for riding through the harsh winter in Denmark, and favorite race suits. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe, give us a five-star rating to help us be seen in the algorithms. And if you have a Castelli product-related question, email us from the contact form on the Castelli website, DM us on Instagram or Facebook, or you can also submit your question through the Q&A on the Spotify app. Thanks, everyone, and see you soon. Mm-hmm.